Welcome to episode 149 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded Sunday, February the 5th, 2017. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed from Bike Biz, and you're listening to uh, the much delayed, but this is the much delayed episode 149 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And why it was delayed, I guess we'll, we'll get out onto that in a second. Now, this show was recorded on Sunday, February the 5th, 2017 already. And joining me on the show today is just, well, it's just a smorgasbord. It's a whole bunch of different people. And because the, this show has been, uh, well, it's been a hiatus, shall we put it like that, for a variety of reasons, and because you've probably all forgotten uh, who we are, uh, we're going to go do a roundtable and we're going to ask people to, to, to introduce themselves and give us a brief overview of who they are so that you haven't, you're refreshed about who, who, who we all are. So on my Skype screen, I will go with that rather than alphabetical, I've got Rick. Rick Vosper is the, the most visible one uh, on my screen. So Rick, tell us a little bit the about most yourself. Visible. That's what it looks ah, like. I'm a guy who's been in the bike, been in the bike industry since, uh, well, let's just say a long time, more than 30 years. Mm. And uh, I've worked for various companies in marketing disciplines. And now I have a little consulting company and I write articles, usually but not always, about the bike business for various online publications and in print. Cool. And Tim, tell us your latest job, Tim, because you've, you've got a, a, a different email address I had to contact. So what's what's going on there? Do recover first. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, similar to, to Rick, I've been in this goofy business for more than 30 years, which is uh, almost frightening to admit. Uh, but currently, I am officially on my own doing freelance PR, media marketing, stuff like that, uh, under the the name of Powered Communications. And Powered is P-O-W-W-O-R-D, little play on words and the impact that they have. Get it? Get it? Do you see what I did there? God, I'm good at this. Uh, mm. No, really. Um so yeah, I, I'm I'm officially a full time, full blown media slash marketing wanker. But picking up all of the the bugs from your kids by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. That's the beautiful part about having an office at home mm -hmm. is that you never get to escape your own funk. Mm -hmm. And they go to school, they pick up the bugs, and you get them. They bring it home. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. I shouldn't well, let them lick the keyboard. That, that's, you know. So Lily is, is beside you there, and she might be appearing in some of the show, if, if not just, just coughing, maybe. That yeah, could be Lily. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. 
So she's Lily, on the iPad watching a video at the moment. So Lily is an unofficial member of uh, today's show. However, very much an official member of the show and has been with us for a long, long time is Donna. Yeah. Donna, tell us about yourself and what you're doing now. Hi, and Happy New Year, everybody. Since, you know, I know it's February, but we haven't talked yeah. to anybody in, no? uh, in no. a while. So Happy New Year to all. Um, I am not in the bicycle industry. I was formerly in the bicycle industry as part of Kryptonite Lock Company and loved my time there and met all of these great folks um, there. But when David added me to the show more than 10 years ago, I can't believe it's been that mm. long. Um, it wasn't because I'm a great cyclist or anything like that, but um, that I do come to, to the show from a little different perspective of a background in event management and a background in communication. Um, right now, I head all of communication branding for Utica National Insurance, which is a regional, uh, large regional company based out of um, upstate New York. And um, I, too, work at home, but my cat and my dog don't seem to bring home the bugs that maybe Tim's kids do. So, Send them to school. Um, that would cure that one. Do you let them lick your keyboard, Donna? <laughs> they do not lick my keyboard, although the cat walks across it every once in a while. But um, So I love being part of this show. I always say I'm a lucky gal um, to be part of this show and am really excited for what, what we've got in store for 2017. Cool. Thank you. And next on my list, my visual list with, with Skype telling me who to call uh, speak to next, and that's Jim of Recreation Law. Jim Moss. Hi, Jim. Hi there. Oh, that sounded bad. But you are talking uh, from the, the Boeing hangar, aren't you? This is why we yes. have... <laughs> yes. Uh, pick up aisle 93. Um, I'm an attorney. Um, I'm sober. Um... <laughs> For now. <laughs> well, you know. We have to be honest with her. Well, those two don't yeah. always go together. Exactly. <laughs> Jim's um, the one who keeps us out of jail. Oh, come on. I, I'm good, but no one's that good. Um, <laughs> and, and although I have low standards, um, I represent bicycle manufacturers and ex component manufacturers and accessory manufacturers in uh, the bicycle industry and the outdoor and ski And ski, industry. yeah. Um, uh, just we just finished up trade show season. Uh, all of the trade shows are done for for seven months. Well, actually, nowadays six months. So we're all recovering from trade show itis, which is uh, being told we're going to see new things and then spending four days looking for something that's new. So uh, I'm glad I'm here because if I wasn't, I'd be lost. Cool. Well, good to have you here, Jim, and good for you to be back on the show from that Boeing hangar. Uh, now, I would say roughly we have a road bias, but I, I'm pretty much sure that everybody on this show has a mountain bike, goes mountain biking. Uh, but the last guest, and the last but not least guest uh, that we're having on today, is Nicole, who is very much, uh, much more mountain bikey than any of us because she edits amount to buy magazine so nicole tell us who you are and what you do hello uh i am the managing editor of bike magazine um Woo. based here in california and i think the last time i was on the show uh which is really dating me was i was an editor at bicycle retailer <laughs> and industry news so that has been over four years oh, um, so. oh my goodness um Yes. Uh, so I've been in so uh, glad to have on the back. journalism side for nearly a decade in the industry. Um, so happy to be back. 
And so, um, so we've all got Mount. Um, did I get that right? Everybody here on the show has got access, rides regularly a mountain bike. Would that be correct? Anybody's no to that? I, I have a brand new one that the first day I rode it, it took 59 seconds before I talked, knocked myself out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Garmin proved it. Oh, because if it didn't happen on Strava or Garmin or something, it just didn't happen, right? Sure. Did you okay. get a KOM That's for that? That's what we say in my house. Did I get what? Did you get a KOM for that ride? <laughs> uh, it was downhill. <laughs> so Nicole, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to police us. If we go down into the, the roadie rabbit hole, just bring <laughs> us back to the real world of mountain biking. Feel feel free to to, yeah, to bring us back. I don't ride, but I've got five mountain bikes in my mm-hmm. house. Does that count? In your house? Literally in sure. your house? Not in a garage? Um, yes. No, no, no. They have a special room off to the side. Oh, sweet. That's a whole other, that could be a whole other topic. That's a show in itself, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, could be. Well, I, just in case anybody got the impression that we're a roadie show, I would say we're very much a cycling show. But we do tend to talk about, normally when it's like the big tours are on, the big Tour de France's and stuff, then we do definitely talk about that. But... Nicole is going to keep us all on the straight and narrow and bring in tons of mountain bike stuff as well. Now, uh, we do have uh, a show notes where we all we all have a look at that we, before we come on air and we discuss what we're going to be talking about. And we have had a few conversations, as you'll as you'll pick up on uh, later in the show, of, 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 of contentious subjects. But we're going to start with some um, very much cycling focused subjects and and this is uh, one of the, the first subjects we're going to talk about on, on a racing point of view and it is road racing but it would could, could just as uh, easily uh, apply to mountain biking as well but that, this is it's newsworthy because of what happened in the tour of dubai uh, last week so that's a men's pro uh, road tour race and you would expect them to get beautiful sunshine all the time but it's in a desert so they also get sandstorms and they cancelled. Was it two stages they cancelled? Day one after stage. day? Was it one stage? Okay. Yeah. So they cancelled a, a, a stage. And Cycling News has got this this story, with, which is very apposite and very worthwhile talking about this, is uh, are the safety concerns now, for want of a better word, trumping uh, the actual oh. racing and we're ne- we're getting less racing because the the UCI, the commissaires or whatever, are stopping riders racing, and sometimes the riders want the, the race to be stopped. But I'm going to go with roughly how we we we, we came in there. So Rick, are, are we getting less racing now because of safety concerns? It's an interesting question. The, this tension between making the riders do crazy things and trying to keep the riders safe has been going on pretty much for as long as there's been cycling. Yeah. One of the things that's happening is the size of the pack, the peloton is getting bigger. As a result, <clears throat> there's more rider interactions, more crashes, there's more motorcycles on the course, taking out riders. We talked about that a mm. lot last year. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but if we, if we go back in time, some of the stuff they did then is absolutely crazy. <laughs> and for our, our younger or younger listeners are those who've been in the sport for less time. June 5th, 1988. Anybody remember that date and why it's significant? Would that be the Hampton one? The Hampton going yeah. up the Gavia. Yeah. Yes. 
If you have not done so, I urge everyone to look up the article called The Day the Strong Men Cried. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. One of the best pieces of cycling or sport journalism I've ever read. And I've been reading this stuff a long time. Uh, Carlton, if we can put that link up uh, on the spokesman page so people can see it. It's absolutely a must read. Which which site is that? Contrast that. You'll have to look. It's it's on a bunch of places. Uh, the one I just pulled up on the web is uh, tourdivide.org. Right. Okay. Has it? And I could just uh, place a link into. Yeah. Our, send our send the link. While we're chatting here so pleasantly. But well, not everybody goes yeah. to the show links, so it's good uh, to get it on audio too. So that's where they can find it. Okay. Okay. So um, point being. You know, here's guys going over the past where their joints are locked up, their brakes won't work, uh, riding on dirt roads, 14% grades in a freaking snowstorm. Mm. And we're canceling races because it's windy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me about that. Mm. Tell me how tough we have it now. The U.S. Pro Challenge was, when it was still alive, uh, was racing over one of the passes in Colorado. And it was sleeting and rainy and cold. And they stopped the race so that the motorcycles allegedly could catch up. And several of the pros yelled things like, you know, I mean, they, they hopped off the bikes and dove in the back of any car that was available to try and get warm. They were just freezing. But there was always an underlying issue there that the person out front that day was from a continental team, Hincapi racing team, and ended up Young winning lad the race. Here. Yeah, the winning the race in, in such a way that, that the photographers, when he crossed the finish line, couldn't see him. And, and, you know, that were, that were up the road another hundred some yards. It was snowing so hard. Um, you know, and there's always that underlying fe- feeling, well, you know, did they want somebody else to win? Were they going to give the opportunity to this kid to win? Or was somebody else going to be there to sneak up? Uh, the, the kid was tougher and he wanted it more than some of the pros did. And he won. Mm. It's not that he's not a pro. He's a phenomenal racer. Nicole, I yep. was at uh, the first World Championships. On, and I'm going to bring a mountain bike um, subject in here. I was at the first World Championships uh, of of mountain biking oh, back in the uh, very early. Uh, you don't need days. to say the date. Well, it's yeah. I think it was eighty six. <laughs> eighty six, I think it was. Uh, Avaraya's France. Anyway, all the top guys American were there. Still won it. It, it was it was Ned Overend. Uh, you can't. Uh-huh. He's still winning races now. But he he was the guy who yeah. who won that. And I we had a twenty five year reunion a few years ago, which tells you how far away this was. And um, he was he was reminding me because I actually rode this race. He was reminding me how stupidly tough that race. That was a genuine mountain bike race. You were carrying the bike for ages. You were you were doing crazy crazy stuff. Now nowadays it doesn't seem to be anywhere near. As, as crazy as that riders would actually complain if you did the kind of course that they put in there but do any mountain bike races get cancelled do they get put off do, if there's extreme weather what's your uh, what happens yeah, I mean, in mountain biking definitely the best example of that would be um you know rampage which is mm. the big mountain free ride um competition in utah every year and that um you know, wind is such a huge, huge factor in that. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, it's way too dangerous if the wind picks up. To be, I mean, not that it's not dangerous anyways to mm. launch yourself off a cliff, but <laughs> right. 
you know, that's where weather is really one of the biggest factors, I would say. I mean, it gets called often. um, Because it can be life or death. Yeah, the wind picks up and they just can't keep going. So I would say in this day and age, that's probably the most common weather affected competition you know you look at the world cup downhill and there's still you know rain shines <laughs> still sending it gesundheit so. bless you <laughs> yeah. or do the sponsors want the big air do the owners of the race want the big air and therefore only hold it on days where big air is possible i mean if it's really windy and you're not gonna be able to do the the double flip and land are you still going to do it? I mean, I guess there's going to be some young youngster out there that sees that as the opportunity to make it. You know, barely got invited to the competition and he's got one shot at it and everybody else is, is laying low. And we see this a lot, in, especially in skiing, in, those, in similar situations. And he goes for it and ends up in a wheelchair mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah, that's yeah, the thing is we're getting, the, we're, that's we're getting athletes injured and – it was not that long ago, a year, maybe two ago at the most when, and I forgive me for not having the, the particulars when a rider was injured at one of the Red Bull events and there was huge outcry about how Red Bull was not doing yep. enough to protect mm-hmm. the riders and ensuring that was, them with insurance. was injured. Yes. Thank you. And <clears throat> we have to, we as spectators of the sport have to, uh, reconcile what it is we actually want because when people get injured we cry foul when it's not extreme enough we cry foul so we have the attention span of an over caffeinated toddler and that is recognized that that creates a problem but you have to also you know keep in mind again too that the organizers in the uci have this huge pressure on them now in this day of litigation and the riders are trying to also have an actual voice in their safeties and careers. Look at the disc brakes on road bikes last year as a primary example. And safety is a paramount concern. These guys, for the most part, are barely making a living. Mm-hmm. It's only the top 1% of the pro peloton that makes any kind of money. Everybody else is pretty much just racing to race because they're not exactly putting away money that's going to send their kids to college. They finish their pro careers and immediately go into working in their own businesses or working for other teams because it's not a lot of money. Cycling is not a big money sport. So, you know, if riders are complaining, if the promoters are scared of the riders complaining, if the UCI is listening to the public and the riders complaining, and we end up with some watered down, possibly watered down events or uh, less hardened the F up going on. And I'm okay with that because I still have friends in the Peloton and when I hear stories about how dangerous the races were and how the courses were so poorly designed and there's tons of road furniture and things like that, the first thought I have is for racing bikes, guys are risking their lives to race bikes. That's BS. So, yeah, I think the extreme weather protocol is fantastic. I mean, looking at the course that was going on during uh, D- Dubai just recently, I mean, how are you going to have a peloton of 100 and almost 90 riders Riding in a crosswind that's so strong that it's blowing the cars off the road. How is that? Where? How? Mm-hmm. That's it's ludicrous to to think that that could even happen. So mm-hmm. I think it was a great call, and it it virtually sealed Marcel Kittel getting his second win there mm-hmm. because you know there was no way he was going to lose the deficit on the last day given the type of stage that it was, which he won and then sealed the event. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's just just to the the other extreme of that example is that 
weather affects the outcome when you ride in it as opposed to when you don't as well. So, you know, again, which, which one is more pure? Mm. Donna, well, do you... it still comes down well, to sorry, personal decision. It still comes down to personal decision. You make the decision to win or just sit in the peloton. You make the decision to believe you can scare that tree out of the way on a, on a downhill run. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you lose the decisions. Um, I mean, I'm living proof of <laughs> losing the decisions. Getting out of bed in the morning can be real exciting. Um, <laughs> I'm it, guessing so, those trees sometimes come off worse, though, Jim. In my case, yes. <laughs> um, and there's, you know, they're starting to talk about me. Uh, but, but <laughs> it's still a personal decision. It's still you saying, I want to win this and I'm willing to do it at any cost. You know, when, when we look back in the, the turn of the century racing, you know, when the racing was through snowstorms, most of those guys didn't even get paid to race. They did it because they loved the idea of the competition, and they went back to a regular job on Monday or Tuesday. Mm. Donna, you were going to pitch in there? Sure. I, I agree with Tim that, you know, it was the right call as an event you. organizer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as an event organizer, you have to – and it's – Nobody understands unless you're on that side of it that it it is the most gut wrenching decisions that you need to make about um, the safety of your of the people that are going to be participating and the spectators, but mostly the people that are participating. You know, if it's going to be a lightning storm, it's a no brainer. You cancel. You know, mm. um, when you know people say, "Oh, wind." Well, that, you know, what are they little babies? But no, if it's that windy that you're blowing things off the road, that's not being a baby. That is safety, and it's not worth it to risk somebody's life, which they certainly would have from what I've read. Obviously wasn't there to feel the wind, but from what I've read, it it really was a safety issue. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we don't, this sport isn't in a dome. You know, weather is always going to be a factor. So somebody might do, you know, some athlete might do great in the heat and another athlete may not. You know what? But they still have to race in, in, in some of the heat. You know, some might be great climbers and some might be great at downhill. You know, this sport is outside. So the weather is always going to become a factor. And sometimes it's going to have to be canceled for safety. Um, mm. You know, when you race in a dome, that's great. Or you play a game in a dome. Well, you don't have that problem. But but you do here. And the organizers really for the safety of all of the people, the volunteers, the organizers, the riders, they made the right call. Cool. And I'm with Rick. Rick said earlier, you know, some of those other races that happened, were they the right call? You know, back in the 80s, I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but maybe they shouldn't have. Everybody survived, so that's great. But um, but there was a big risk. Okay, I'd now like to move on. Thank you very much, Donna. I'd like to move on to a really uncontentious subject, which which everybody would be happy to to talk about because these things are are just absolutely great to to air in public, and that is uh, Trump. Um, now we had we did agree before the show uh, came on air that. We're going to absolutely, uh, personally, professionally steer this completely away from political opinions. And we're only going to be viewing this through the prism of, quite bizarrely to think about this, but purely the prism of uh, the bicycle industry. And whether, 
You already lost it. Yeah, I've, I kind of have lost it as well. <laughs> it is a tough one to do. Um, uh, it, is, it is a tough one. But is the uh, the advent of this particular administration something that is going to be uh, maybe negative in many other ways, but maybe positive for UK, um, US, sorry, US manufacturing of bicycles? Who, I'm, I'm quite happy to give somebody this <laughs> this topic to run with first. Is there anybody who wants to just pitch in and talk about that particular topic? Well, yeah, it's, it's going to be great for the manufacturer of US bicycles. It's going to suck for the consumers. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is if your consumer wants a good bike, a bad bike, whatever it is, cheap, then it's going to be made in China because mm. – they can get away, or or Taiwan, or Vietnam. A friend of mine in the industry just said that everything's moving to Vietnam right now. Yeah, Chinese well, wants much Cambodia, yeah. India is and, going to be ramping up production big time. And the issue is not, you know, whether or not it's good to have jobs in the United States. It is, but it's also whether or not you want to pay that much for a bike. And on top of the fact that we don't have the capacity in the U.S. at this point, there are very few manufacturers of, of bicycle frames that, that also do paint assembly. All the logistics involved with that, the parts still come from overseas as well, so you have to get the parts here, and they're already in Asia, so that keeps the uh, shipping costs down for transport of logistics to, to get all this together. So the only real infrastructure that exists here in North America for mass production of bikes is mass being a very small mass and being at the high end. So if we are talking about the overall bike industry, the overall bike industry is not going to, in the U.S., I mean, is not going to see this massive ramp up in production because there just isn't the capacity and the infrastructure to do it. So it's going to take two to three to four to five years to build the capacity to build bikes that are uh, – the higher volume, lower cost product. So, so Tim, potentially you're not you've got start to seeing bikes from Walmart being made in the U.S. anytime soon. So Tim, potentially that's like through to another administration by the time you've actually got right. everything put in place, or another two or three administrations. Mm. Yes, because the, it, the, the factories don't just sprout up overnight mm. because you planted a seed in the ground, mm. and all of a sudden, boom, you have production. You also have to find people who know how to make the product. You have to find people who know how to paint and assemble the product. I've dealt with factories in Taiwan and China that if they have a a shift leader leave and go to another factory that shuts down their production within the factory because they don't have the leadership there to, to run production. Mm. And that's in something that's already established. I mean, you mm. want to talk about delays in product in an established, well-running industry in China and Taiwan. It, it only takes a slight hiccup to make that happen. And so you're going to start an entire industry in mm. North America to do that. There, it, it doesn't exist, and it hasn't mm. since the the early early Schwinn days here in the. Well, let, in let me North. let me bring in Rick on this actually, because Rick, well, as he said at the top of the show, if he's comfortable you. to talk about this, he has been in the industry a long time. Now, one of the companies you've worked uh, for with, uh, Rick, has been Specialized. Uh, Specialized is is famous for being mm -hmm. set up as a a company that, in, from the very first from the get go. Uh, Mike Sinyard was yes. was was going to the Far East to get his stuff. He's never ever made uh, in the U.S. So I'd like you to talk about a little bit about that. But also because you have been in the industry for so long, 
you came into the industry when there was still that Schwinn type infrastructure there where we are, Mm -hmm. you know, people were making in the US. So you saw that too. So you saw it from both angles. You saw it from like, you know, going to Asia angle and the fact that they were still making in the US at the time. So can you can you square that circle for us, Rick? Um, I would be glad to try. I'm trying to think about which order to take this stuff in. Uh, I guess. Okay. Uh, first of all, one of the things I started with when I was in the bike industry is I was hand pulling parts off the shelves, putting them into boxes and matching them up to frames for the original stump jumper mm-hmm. shipments to uh, bike shops in the United States. So that was 83 or something. Mm-hmm. Specialized has only ever made one thing itself in the history of the company. And we'll play Stump the Panelist. Does anybody know what that is? Specialized on the production water facility, bottle. does it themselves. Water bottle. Oh, yes, yes. That's Nicole. They still do. <laughs> That's Nicole. Hey, Nicole. Nicole. Just to wins. be clear, it was not Donna. <laughs> it wasn't Jim. It's, it's so good to hear from you. We haven't spoken in years. So, yes, it is water bottles. So, to the question of domestic assembly. The the ability to do this, I'm sorry, let me back up once more and say, right now, thanks to our friends in the EU, including our friends who are still in the EU but are about to leave the EU, have done a great job of pioneering production outside of China in other Asian countries for us. And Carlton, it might be interesting to drag in uh, the current uh, issue with Chinese uh, bicycles being relabeled as electric bikes or mm-hmm. vice versa. I forget which mm-hmm. one it is. Uh, we're looking at you know, huge amounts of money. Uh, but the point is tariff dodging and the very high uh, penalty tariffs that the EU has imposed on Chinese goods. This means that for much of the rest of the cycling world, they're already embargoing or putting high tariffs on stuff from China. What's happened is the Chinese have invested in factories in Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody help me out. Where else are they going? Laos, Cambodia. Uh, Philippines, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, so India. Yeah, thank you. India. Yeah. Yeah. And those people, we already have a non-Chinese manufacturing base that's very robust. So we uh, in the United States could just source our bicycle frames wherever else it is. Uh, wherever else they're being made. The second option, and I wrote a rather long article about this a couple of years ago for a bicycle retailer, uh, is we can source not actual production so much, but we can source assembly of bicycles in Mexico. Not when now, there's a wall. Mr. Trump puts a huge embargo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, right, no politics. Of 20%. Okay, well, no, this is just a point of... This is just a point of fact. If we mm. import, if we put huge tariffs on Mexican-made goods, mm. they'll cost more to come into the United States. Mm. Uh, however, if you look at if you run the numbers, logistics of building Maquiadora facilities in Mexico, flying in frames and components, first of all, much much cheaper to do it that way because <laughs> assembled bikes take up a huge amount of space, and you're buying what we call cubes, cubic inches, when you ship stuff via ocean. You assemble it in Mexico. The labor rates in Mexico have been on parity with China for about the last six years. 
So you're not going to in introduce any additional costs there. Uh, with NAFTA, it's it's basically no charge to ship the stuff into the United States and deliver it. It's a much closer distance. You don't have the freight charges. You don't have to hold stuff up in port. There's, there's a lot of good reasons, but people who do this kind of stuff for a living have done the analysis and say, we could either make or assemble bicycles in Mexico, put them into the United States at cost parity with mm -hmm. doing them in China. Mm -hmm. Now, to Tim's point, if you really want to do it, you have to bring in manufacturing. And there are uh, there are a number of places that are trying to onshore or reshore manufacturing now. Uh, the most notable one is uh, Hyavelo out of yep. uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. My neighbors, Tony Carklin, has yep. been in the industry yep. forever. And I applaud they what are, he's doing. But again, it's all high end. Oh. And, and gorgeous. It is. And yeah, uh, they're, they're really beautiful. The uh, paint is done by Cycle Art. They actually yeah. bought Cycle Art, the company, one of the uh, most highly regarded custom paint outfits. They yep. bought the entire company, shipped them and their stuff and the staff out to uh, out to Arkansas. Uh, so they're doing it right. What most people, even most people in the industry, do not know, there is a parallel effort that's been going on for over a year now anyway, and probably many years before that. It is codenamed, I love this name, Project Reshore Maverick. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And this is a group of investors out of San Francisco who have formed a consortium with some very large component, uh, component uh, composites manufacturers. They're in the process of building their own factory outside of Salt Lake City. They've staffed it. They're training the people. And their idea was to provide a very high production, mass customization, mm. high-end carbon frame factory uh, in the United States with some very sexy advanced technologies I can't talk about uh, and some major players from within the U.S. composites industry. Uh, this is sort of a stalking horse because they want to do the same thing for uh, the auto parts industry. But point is, for now, they're doing it with bikes. Rick, can I just stop you there? And, Interesting clearly, thing about project. So, sorry, can I just stop you? Rick, the, you, you mentioned auto parts there and bicycle parts together. In the auto industry, they're yeah. using a lot of robots, an awful lot of robots, which is how you can bring the jobs back to the, the US because they're not actually real jobs. It's going to be robots. Yeah. So the auto factories are going to be mainly robots. In the bike industry, when you're making a carbon bike frame, that ain't robots. So Project Reshore Maverick, they're going to be using expensive people, Yeah. Yes, uh, <clears throat> there are some things in composites that are not particularly well-suited to robots. If you look in the cost, of, let's take a, a very high-end, say, a Pinarello carbon bike, there is more hand finish in that bike. In fact, the uh -huh. hand finishing is the single largest, single largest component of the cost of the product. Mm -hmm. That's all got to be done by hand. I mean, you can have robot brazers for for steel bikes or aluminum bikes you can have robot or robot assisted paint done on low-end bikes for the kind of quality we're talking about here it pretty much has to be done by hand now auto parts uh people forget uh bikes are one of the most complex shapes human beings yep. have ever made out of composites yep yep, yep. It, we're not talking about a bumper on a Chevy pickup here made out exactly. of glass. This stuff is really hard. That's why uh, the 
the bike industry is using more sophisticated tooling, more sophisticated procedures, more production technology than the auto industry does. We think autos are really expensive and they're making millions and billions of dollars off them. They must be doing stuff right. Well, they are. It's just not right for bikes. Yeah. And it's also, like you were saying, it's a much more simple system of components that are put together that in itself is complex, mm-hmm. but the, the bike is a simple yes. system of components that is complex <laughs> because of oh. the complexity of the, the frame design. And, and, you know, to Carlton's point and to your point is that you robots can't cut and place little teeny tiny snippets of carbon fiber inside of a mold and then pop that out of the mold and, as you mentioned, do the, the hand finishing because, you know, obviously – you know very well what a, a raw carbon frame looks like when it pops out of the mold. It's not what you end up riding. There's a lot of work that goes into making it what a consumer is going to ride. But again, we're still talking about composites, and that automatically puts that at a lower volume, higher cost, smaller swath of what the industry is. We, we on the show, tend to exist a bit in the, the bubble and the mm-hmm. lens of higher end product because it's what we have it's what we use it's what we ride for the most part now obviously i have inexpensive steel commuter bikes as well but we tend to see what we spend the most time with and that's the expensive stuff but to the to the point of being able to have an actual manufacturing industry we don't have we don't have the things here to set that up and make it happen and to rick's point about the creating larger production down in Mexico that we've been looking at that for as long as I've been in the industry, there's been discussion about making bikes in Mexico and it just hasn't happened. There's just been too little momentum to get that to happen. And the, the cost parity is one thing, the near parity is one thing, but with the, uh, the, the current rhetoric and dialogue that's, that's, I'm trying to not make it political. I, I promise. <laughs> the, the current the current atmosphere around doing anything in or with Mexico makes it hard for mm-hmm. me to imagine with the current administration that that could be something that would happen because the cost and the investment is so high to get it started. And the political cost. Payout. And the political cost, exactly. Mm. Who, mm. What, what person or group of people is going to want to even take that gamble right now when there's so much uncertainty? So I think that any investors who would have, under a different set of circumstances, been willing to travel to Mexico and get something established, that motivation and that drive is not going to exist right now, no matter how great the potential payoff is, because there's just way too much uncertainty. Okay. There's one final Okay, let me not- let me rebut that if I may with one word. <laughs> Jim, Jim, bring you in in a minute. Go for it's, it, Rick. It's yep. not about it's not about Mexico. It's about South American production. That one word is Jameis. So a couple of years ago, Jameis established a factory in not Brazil, Argentina, maybe, and they have been shipping bikes out of that factory for at least a year. And as far as anybody knows, they're perfectly good quality, and they uh, they do it well. There's quite a bit of apparel in Mexico as well, from what I recall. Um, you know, pe- I know that Specialized was doing some apparel there at some point. I don't know if they still are. This yeah. was a couple of years ago. 
And, you know, yeah. Easton had that Mexico factory for their wheels, yep. their carbon wheels that closed down. I feel like it's kind mm-hmm. of been, there's been some dabbling, but it hasn't necessarily really gone anywhere, as Tim was saying. You know, it's yeah. always a topic, but, you know. Yeah, it's always really lower volume production or right, accessories. It's complicated yeah. as bikes, exactly. And, I, when yeah. I was working for Canary, they had production in Mexico as well. But you wouldn't be investing money there now, would you? Me, no. Anybody, anybody, and anybody in the U.S., you're not going to be investing in one. One assumes in Mexico. But to Rick's point with with Jameis, again, that's even though it's a connected landmass, I think that it, in politically ideolo- ideal, ideal. Oh, geez, I can't speak English. Ideology. It's, More coffee, Tim. Yeah, exactly. I've only had one. That's the problem. It's the um, meds you're on. Yeah, well, there is that too. Um, but I, I think that there's still this this weird mental disconnect between, oh, well, that's South America. It's not the same thing as Mexico. So if we're having a war of words with Mexico, going further south into Central and South America isn't going to, you know, it's just like Rick was talking about with a- Asian production that's owned by China that is outside of mainland. It's still, <laughs> we're still paying Chinese companies for those products they're just being shipped from a landmass that is not china there's another final thing that people have hinted about that that they that most people won't understand is the fact that the car industry or some of these other industries that are making changes back to the continental united states have a lot more capital available um the first first company down to a new country gets a lot of tax breaks, gets a lot of incentives. So when Jameson went south, they probably had the first opportunity to grab some good deals and they could make it work. The second, third, and fourth companies that try and do that, or the first or second companies that go back to Utah or whatever, aren't going to get any benefits from that. And it takes an awful lot of capital to start up a new operation, buying the land, building the building, buying the machinery, and training the employees takes money. And the bike industry doesn't have it just, I mean, it doesn't even come close to happening. Mm. Okay, guys, before we, we go down this particular subject even further, I'll probably stop it there. In fact, I will stop it there uh, because we, we didn't swear. We didn't get incredibly political. Uh, nobody f- fought with anybody else. That's all good. So let's go on to a totally different subject. Uh, uh, and this is, <laughs> we're now going to come, come back to the, the EU in fact, but it's also a U.S. story because a EU company uh, has bought a U.S. company. So Rossignol, which is uh, famous, yeah. and Jim will, will know this brand, I'm sure, very, very well because of his yep. world that he go, uh, circulates industry. in, has uh, bought, they, they had time uh, previously, but now they've bought Felt. So interestingly, uh, there's going to be on the cards, very possibly, or in fact, it says in the press release that there's going to be, yeah. there's going to be a, a, a Rossignol mountain bike so let's bring in nicole first and just because you've got two hats there uh, nicole you've been in the industry with the bicycle retailer and the industry hat on so it must be interesting from from that point of view but the fact there's going to be this interesting new mountain bike brand is that going to be do we need another mountain bike brand well i I guess i'm kind of curious if it and i don't know maybe this was in the press release I mean, do they plan, is that sort of a way to expand into Europe? Like, do they plan to sell that brand globally or is that just sort of an avenue into, um, you know, a a name that's maybe more recognizable? A brand awareness thing. 
Yeah, as opposed to trying to expand felt over there, mm-hmm. which I, my impression is felt is not very present um, in Europe. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that's just a way to to kind of bring in another brand. Um, I, I, it'd be interesting if they do try to sell that over in, in North America. I can't imagine that, you know, there's just a ton of competition. Everybody knows there's a lot of brands kind of fighting for one little piece of the pie that's left over. And, um, you know, EU brands have typically had a some challenges. Time. Right. G- getting much in the way of market share in North America. So I'd be really surprised if they bikes. take Right. I'd be really surprised. You've got such big players with, you know, specialized in Santa Cruz and Trek over here. And, Mm. um, you know, felt I feel like right now is it's pretty strong regionally, but I don't know, you know, if you're looking at all of North America on, you know, say the East Coast, if it's it's based here in in Southern California. So you see quite a few of their bikes around here. so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that means. Does that give them a little bit more capital to expand? Um, yes. Do that? Do they bring that Rosignol brand into North America? I'm I'm kind of not sure how they're gonna approach this one. This is yeah, a I this is a brand a that stuff going on. Go you, you read you read sorry. This is a recognized ski brand. This is not just an EU thing. You know, US types know of Rosignol as a, a ski right. brand. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that. Part of the the decision, as I understood it, I can't remember where I saw it, about Rossignol being interested not only in felt but in, in having their own branded MTB is that, to Jim's point earlier, is that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that concerns the ski industry in terms of climate change. And what are you going to do when there's less snow or there's less snow in the places where there used to historically be a lot of snow and now there's snow in new areas? How, how, how do winter sport companies shore up their business and prepare for what appears to be happening <laughs> you know, with climate change and the, the shift in uh, people's sporting activities due to that? Uh, if the ski season is shorter, how are you going to keep your business afloat, keep your brand strong? So I think that that's an interesting move by Rossignol there mm. to do that. Yeah. And to Nicole's point, Felt has always been probably the strongest regional brand in North America where they have pockets of great strength. And they've done well in Germany. They had the the parent company in Germany for a while. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things – it, it, they've kind of like Scott where they've straddled this weird position of being strong in certain places, not strong in other places. And it just kind of levels out as being a, a, you know, when you look at their global sales, they end up being sort of that mid tier, strong mid tier brand. And I think felt is trying to compete more with the brands like Scott as opposed to trying to take on Trek and Specialized and Giant and the the, the really big key players. And Scott, um, of course, is a, a ski brand too. Yeah, exactly. And and global. I mean, they're, mm. they're all over the place and they've got a huge range of products from shoes, helmets, goggles, ski equipment, bikes. I mean, they're, they're, they're big. And I don't think Felt uh, on their own could begin to even compete with that and being joined at the hip now with Rossignol they're able to 
get more funding to be more competitive and Rossignol has another avenue to sell product when skis aren't selling. So right. I, it was a little, it was a little interesting at first glance, but, uh, digging into it a little deeper, it makes a ton of sense to me. Now I'm just curious to see where it ends up going for, for both brands. Um, uh, and and I I have a ton of respect for the felt brand. Uh, I've known many people who have worked there, and I, I have always liked their products. So I'm 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 hoping that for them it means that they get the resources to be able to follow through on the innovations that they have or have in the pipeline, mm-hmm. as well as to uh, you know just remain strong and and get the growth that that they deserve. Truly, they've, they've got a good product and always have. Uh, Jim Felt's been a great innovator in the industry, and I have just a, a ton of respect for what's happened there over the years. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how it pans out for them, but I, I hope it's, it's an, an up, not a down. Let's, let's bring you good channels as well, you know, that Rosignol brings to the table. Presumably, yeah. you know, there's, there's a distribution channel that they would have in Europe that could, you know, that could benefit Felt. Mm-hmm. I just would yep. be curious about the mountain bike, you know, like, I, I can't imagine they would want to position something that would compete with felt, which is obviously you would think what they would want to promote more. So I'd I, be curious where they're going to p- position all of that if they do bring a Rosignol mountain bike to, to the market. Mm. Let, let's bring Jim in here. I know you were kind of trying to get me in there anyway, Jim, but I've got a question for you. And that this is with your ski and bike hats on. We don't actually see that many brands straddling the two. I mean, we don't see a Burton mountain bike, for instance. So here's Rossignol doing a Scott, bringing in a, a bike brand. How come we don't actually see more of this? Why isn't there, because of what Tim was saying about seasonality and lots of US shops, I know, you know, we'll, we'll switch to being a ski shop and then a, a, a bike shop. How come we haven't seen more brands that actually straddle those, those two industries? I, I think that they're actually out there. You just they don't recognize, no one recognizes it. So, um, uh, let's see here. What's it called? Vanity Fit. No, Jarden got sold to some Rubbermaid company and they had both winter and summer, uh, manufacturing there. Uh, it, it happens in a lot, but a lot smaller brands, but I think you're going to see it happen a lot more. And for this reason, if you look at things from the man, from the standpoint of the Phelps, who were they going to sell to? Uh, getting older, getting tired, want to move on, try something different, whatever the reasoning is, there's not many places that you can sell a successful brand nowadays. Uh, Once you get above the $10 million mark, Mm -hmm. then the return on investment starts to skyrocket for the purchaser. So, you know, a five or $6 million company in sales goes for 7 million or 8 million. But a company that's making twenty million can go for a hundred to two hundred million. Um, it, it's it's an amazing thing. And so, you've got a company selling fifty million dollars worth of bikes a year. It used to be you sold it to a group of employees, or somebody else came along and bought it, or you set up a, a buyout plan. Um, ESOPs were good. Employees owned um, uh, employee ownership of the company works in a lot of cases. Uh, but nowadays it doesn't because the numbers are too big. So any successful bike brand that's out there that's survived and is still running is only going to be able to sell to somebody like this. 
Mm-hmm. And so they're gonna, you're going to see all sorts of international companies looking around and going, wow, we should, we should buy more. Look at Envy. Who bought Envy? Uh, they own uh, – that manufacturer owns a couple of winter sports companies. <laughs> Mavic, Ember Sports. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, good point. Um, Rick or Donna, do you want to pitch in on this, this subject at all? I'd, um, <clears throat> it seems to me that bringing Rossignol money to felt – and giving it the horsepower to continue innovating, uh, they are one of the under over one of the underestimated jewels of certainly the North American bike scene. Those guys are doing a lot of good stuff, and I don't only say that they used to be a client of mine, but uh, they're well widely considered to be one of the smartest made products in the industry. Any more horsepower on the R&D end is great, but they're not going to solve the main problem, which is a distribution problem. Mm. Yeah, we have, you know, I've said this over and over, we have 30% fewer bike shops in the United States than we did 10 years ago. Mm, We have fewer people cycling every year. We have enormous hegemony from those three major players, two major players, plus Giant. It's not enough to have a good product. It's not even enough to have a better product. you got to have floor space for that product to get shown by bike shops. That's really a huge deal. Mm. There's currently 3,000 bike shops in the U.S. Of those, probably you know 2,000 are dealing in this sort of end of things. And guess what? Between Specialized and mm. Trek, they're in over 2,000 bike shops. Yeah. There's not a lot of place left to go. Mm. Yep. And it doesn't matter how big Rossignol is. They're not going to change that equation. The other side of it, which is to take the felt brand and put it into Europe, is a great idea. It is in Europe, but it's it, it kind of keeps on falling in and out of distribution. So yeah. in the UK, we, we had a strong distributor for it, and then that stopped. And then another one came along, and then that stopped. They just doesn't seem to get the traction. Mm-hmm. So maybe Ross and Yol... Yeah. Yes. Okay, good, good. Uh, Donna, yeah, yeah, were you yeah, were you happened. were you desperate to pitch in on felt? <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I, I am just very aware that uh, you you haven't pitched on the last two subjects, um, and and one of them I know why it's you okay. didn't you didn't pitch in. So that's absolutely fine. So let's just move on anyway. Maybe you've got strong opinions on the on the next one, which is. Um, but I'll bring uh, Nicole on on this one first anyway, and that is. Uh, it's been rumoured for a long time. I've done a story and I've been to see them across in Germany and they said it was imminent and then it didn't happen. But now it does seem to be coming, they say, because it's now something uh, uh, official. And uh, Nicole, you can you can fill us in exactly what that official thing is with the brand that it, it does seem as though everybody in the US is, is dying to see. So that's Canyon. Yeah, that's Canyon. And I, I mean, Carlton, you and I, I think, have both covered this over the years and I mean, it's been, I'm going to say, at least three or four years since they first kind of brought this up. And it's sort of always been out there as, yes, Canyon's going to expand in North America at some point. And it's always been kind of vague. I mean, I know they were, at some point, they were working with competitive cyclists. And then that company was bought by Backcountry. And Mm -hmm. I think that changed the course a little bit. and they've always said, you know, if we're going to come to North America, we really want to have the same strong customer service. We want to have, you know, if you've been to their facility in Germany, you know how it's, I mean, for an online brand, um, 
people are sending their bikes back just to get tune-ups. I mean, they've got the customer service pretty well dialed, I think. I, I, I think there's been issues on and off. Um, but, you know, now they've said that, you know, third quarter of 2017, we are actually going to be in the U.S. They're setting up a facility in Southern Southern California. And just from the mountain bike side, I mean, this is something our readers have there's a lot of demand, I think, for not just Canyon, but this sort of, um, you know, online brand mm-hmm. YT has gotten really popular in the U.S. as well. So just uh, that model, you think that model is attractive? Yeah, because, you know, they're 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 cutting out some of the cost to the consumer um, by being direct. Um, and I feel like these brands have gotten customer service to a point where people feel more comfortable. And it's always, it's also just consumer buying habits. People are way more comfortable buying big ticket items now online than they Mm -hmm. were. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so it's a, it's, you know, it's kind of a good time for these brands to be testing the water a little bit in the U S and, um, you know, people have been wondering about Canyon for a long time. Long time. Yeah, their mm-hmm. bikes are well reviewed. There's, um, you know, and the the value proposition is same with YT. It's really good. Um, and I think the big kind of the broader impact of this is how does a how does a specialized attract a giant? Um, how do they compete with these smaller, more nimble online brands that they've been can- building it in the background for years, waiting for the day to be able to go live with it. Right. And I mean, I know Trek is, I know everybody's working on this, but are, are they going to be able to compete with, um, you know, with these smaller online brands? I think mm. that will be really interesting to see as well. Don't, don't. <laughs> what Canyon has going for them on top of having a phenomenal product. Um, they, they have a lot of innovation there. They've, they've got good stuff mm-hmm. and they've mm. got a lot of brands here who are scared, scared of them. Um, what they have, even more so going for them is a fantastic history of doing what they do. They've already been the nimble player, the giant. Well, not to use them as a, as a comparison, but they've, they've been the, the gorilla in the room online for years. And they've got a very sophisticated system online. You can go and build the spec of your bike. You can set up your size, all these things. They've got it nailed down and now they're going to plug it into the market here where they have a, a, a built up demand waiting for their product. And again, Canyon doesn't make cheap products. So we're not talking about they're going to come here and all of a sudden they're going to take over the U.S. bike industry because it's all high end product. They don't make cheap bikes. So they're going to be a competitor at that rarefied air at the top end. But as we've seen, the top end is super competitive because the market has been dropping. So, you know, there's are are there Bike shops that are still selling ten, fifteen thousand dollar road bikes, like Pinarello mm. Dogmas with a full campy super record EPS group. Yeah, there are some, but it's it's a tiny portion of the of the market overall. So I I'm, I'm looking forward to Canyon finally actually pulling the trigger and being here, because it's going to be another one of those. As much as I hate to use the word disruptors in the market, mm. that's going to force everybody else to up their game and innovate on more than just their marketing. You have right. to actually do something you have to this actually is how people want to shop now and yeah. right right but know. question for you guys um because i don't know about the brand but they in the article that were in the show notes um do you have to send the bikes back to get 
any service on them? No, They're you don't. Is that true? Chips. You don't What's have that? to. I, th I think they kind of encourage that. They sort of um, take that model, you know, almost like a car dealership or something where it's like, hey, we're the, we're the certified the Canyon mechanics. Okay. And, you know, but you could take it in any bike shop, presume, you know, presuming that the bike shop will work on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't have to. The but also, they, yeah, that's, that, that's, they try to build that community sort of around like, hey, I've got a canyon. I'm going to send it into a certified canyon mechanic to get it worked on. But they also try yeah. to do a deal with, with Beeline. So Beeline, uh, which is an uh, online, you know, not an online, but a, like a, a van mechanic. Shop. Yeah. So they do it. That's the other component to all of this is yeah. that mm. we have to look at where who's making their strategic alliances with which of the mobile mechanics, because mm. that's yep. going to be a huge component of what happens going forward. Mm. Yeah, right, because Nicole's right. I mean, this is the way that the buying habits are going. It, you know, we all, I mean, Amazon had, what, 53% of the increase of the online um, shopping market last year. I mean, it's just people buy, are very comfortable buying lots of things online. So I think that's great. The only, the only thing I saw is, and I don't know if it's different in Europe than in the U.S., it's a different market, is people want that immediate immediacy. So, you know, if you, and they also want just what you said, that certified mechanic. So bringing it into your local bike shop where you didn't buy it there, maybe it's not a certified Canyon mechanic, now what do you do? I mean, you don't want to be not riding your bike for four weeks to send a bike back. So well, I just see that might be there already a buy a specialized and take it to a shop that sells Trek because it's the shop sure. that's near them. You know, they, they buy the product that they want and then they take it to the shop that they trust. So sure. that already exists. So I don't see that being an issue at all. No. The, no, the, the biggest care. issue I saw was the early version of Tepid, of Tepid, of, of Canyon's tepid announcement they were coming to the U.S. where it was all going to be shipping from Europe. And so consumers would have to wait up to six weeks to get a bike. That, you know, that that's not going to fly. That's going to be that's going to be a no-go for a lot of people. Some people are going to be willing to wait that little bit of time. I mean, I think you can get consumers to wait a week or two for a product. Six probably isn't going to happen this, because this of that is, gratification this thing. But why? they will wait a small amount of time because – They've been consumers haven't in the U.S. have not had any access to Canyon other than going, you know, backdoor through Europe and having a buddy send it over to them. Right. So there, and, and I have friends who have done it. Um, but there's, if they can get it easily now, even if they have to wait a, a couple of weeks to get it, they will because they haven't had access to it at all. Now so, that they will have at least some access to it, they're going to jump on it. Donna, you mentioned immediacy, and this is the, the thing with Canyon in the UK and in Germany and in the rest of Europe. They are not immediate brands. You don't go online and get your bike the next day, which yeah. is the US normal UK model. You know, you, you want these things immediately. Their model, it's a very German model, is you order them like you order a car. And you actually, you do wait six weeks. For a Canyon bike, you wait six weeks. You put your order in, and then they eventually make it. So that's not going to fly in the U.S. market. So this is this and it's one of the reasons why they, they've struggled in the U.K. market at, at times with people's uh, uh, perception of, of how they do this. So that's how they've had taken so long to get the U.S. market up and running because they have to be able to ship these things quickly because a U.S. consumer does not want to wait any more than three or four days for a, a bike to ship. And that is not their business model. So they've had to change their whole business model just to hit the U.S. market. Yep. 
Yeah, they said they're going to build 450 bikes a day. Mm. <laughs> so when they when they brought on their new factory on stream, that put huge delays into the system. Mm-hmm. So no doubt bringing the US on stream, if they don't handle it correctly, can gum up the whole of their global operation. So yeah. I'm guessing they've just been really cautious so it doesn't doesn't gum them up. Well, and when you when you expand your company, any company, there's risk, you know, but if and and as you said, they're a German company and, you know, to put a big generalization, pretty organized culture, you know. Um, So I'm thinking that if if this is taking them such a long time to actually break into the U.S. market, that they are dotting their I's and crossing their T's, if you will. And um, hopefully they will they they have figured this all out. I, th- I think that's why they've taken so long. It's just they are, that's what, exactly right. They are treating this very, very cautiously and professionally and well. And then they'll, they'll absolutely hit the market, uh, the ground running. You really get one shot at it, you know? They can't. Yeah. Right. They're, yeah. Right. Completely. Turn. Right. And it'll be interesting to see a year from now on the show, February 2018, um, what, what we all think are. about it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Put that in the show notes for February of 2018. <laughs> yeah. Reminders then, yes. Okay, let's let's move on, folks, and let's go. Uh, let's go to Nicole again, and because this is you, you brought this up, and it, we know it's not uh, technically newsworthy as such, but it's interesting, and we haven't discussed it before, and that's the the Trek ambassador role. So, Nicole, you you brought that up, so take it away. Yeah, I mean, this kind of I, I think somebody had mentioned you know, this topic of getting more women in the industry, which is sort of always a topic. And hopefully, you know, there's been a lot of improvement, I guess, just off the top of my head, you know, QBP's got that program for female mechanics, scholarships, I'm sure you've talked about that. Um, Trek's done something interesting with its ambassador program this year, um, where, you know, generally brands with ambassador programs, it's sort of like a privateer athletes um who are racing on the bike and you know promoting it on social media that you know a lot of times there's nothing super strict they're getting product to kind of um you know in exchange for promoting the message is received from jesse moss Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) okay (laughs) so change the way it's doing that with uh they recruited 50 i think 54 advocates mm. from north america and they're all tied into um a retailer they're either a retailer themselves or they're really close with the shop the shop recommended the the woman um and they all went to waterloo trex headquarters back in the fall for this big sort of um you know rah rah thing three days and um kind of immersed all these women in in all things track you know touring the factory and Mm -hmm. learning about all the product and and the interesting thing to me is that these women actually have sales goals you know like they had to sort of report back with track with okay this is my plan this is how i'm actually going to increase sales in my community um and this is how I'm going to get more women involved in cycling in my community, um, hosting rides, doing clinics, things like that, that really could translate into sales at the retail level. Mm. Um, and I guess I've, I haven't seen another brand be that proactive um, 
in terms of an ambassador program to really try to bring more women in. Um, so I just thought it was pretty interesting that they, they took, you know, it's a one year thing. They're going to see how it goes. They're going to see if it really makes an impact, Mm. um, and then kind of reevaluate. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of their, their approach. Nicole, Uh, you want, you want more of these things? John, sorry. We should have more of these things, Nicole. This is like, you know, Trek are doing this, but other brands should be doing this too. Or do you think they should just wait to see if that, it pans out for them? Yeah, I'd be interested to see if it pans out. Talking to John Burke, you know, who the CEO of Trek about it, he's, you know, the, he feels like they're really leaving a lot of sales mm. on the table by not reaching out better to females. And I, mm. you know, I agree with him. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, it's admirable that yeah. they're trying something different. They're not just kind of like doing the same old thing. They're actually like, okay, going back to the drawing board, how can we actually try to make a difference on the at the retail level where, you know, the bottom line is what they're thinking about, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so will it work? I don't know. Well, it's it was interesting to read about um, the program in the link that that you guys sent um, because it was talking about how in the bike shops, you know, that it's a it's a lot of men men doing the mechanics, men doing the sales, um, you know, and that's a big generalization. But there's a lot of men involved, and in that you know, women spend money. Big surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, women like to ride bikes. Big surprise. Um, and how how are you getting maybe somebody who just wants to start riding? How are you getting them? to um to be involved and to feel like they can ask questions and and all of that and you know back in uh, years ago when i was at kryptonite we had the same issue with bringing women into motorcycle um dealers and did a program there where we brought in a couple of motorcycle riders that were women and did bike nights that were just for women um, and allowed them to come in and ask questions and do and see the dealership where there were or the bike shop or the motorcycle shop where there were just women in the shop at the time. So they could ask their questions, the newbies and the, the, you know, the riders who've been riding for a while. So I applaud Trek for doing this and bringing them in, whether this is the right program or not. I mean, again, put it in the show notes for February of 2018. (laughs) Um, But I do think Carlton, you asked the question, should, you know, other bike brands be doing this, whether it's this program or something else, they really need to be encouraging the women to come into the shops to learn more, to get out on their bikes, even um, so much as group rides and things like that. Um, You know, inviting women to take part. I know there's a mountain bike group here where they just recently had um, they were going to have their association meeting and they had a ride beforehand. And one woman came and, you know, the guys kind of all left her. Um, you know, to ride on her own a little bit. And a couple of guys stayed with her, but the rest kind of left. Well, that wasn't included. You know, start including That's women. not exactly they, inclusive. Right. Mm-hmm. They will tell their friends. Trust me. They will tell yeah. their friends good and bad. Mm. So, um, you know, if you want more women to be involved and you want more women to ride bikes and buy bikes, you know, programs like this are are what paved that paved that way and um in the association level as well so i think it's great i applaud trek for doing it we'll see if this is the right way to do it um but just to get them started on i think it's fantastic i guess well, there's no the right way it's just it's a way and it's just it's yeah. we need, we need right. a lot, lots of ways yeah yeah Nicole. and i think yeah. what to to what trek is doing that i like is that they are in fact trying to monetize it and by trying to monetize mm. it that will give it 
something that helps it stay alive within mm-hmm. the company because the bean counters will be able to mm-hmm. uh, continue to let something like that continue. I, right. Sorry, I, I'm speaking in a loop here, but the point being is that if, if it's monetized and at least to some degree self-supporting and sustainable, then guess what? It'll keep going mm-hmm. because how many different women's sort of programs have we seen come and go and vanish almost as quickly as they show up because it has a cost associated with it and the industry is not very good at swallowing costs on hope of building something later especially when it comes to women because it's just a bunch of stupid guys so if you they'll they'll throw money down the ever-expanding sinkhole of pro cycling for men um, and never make a penny off of it, but be able to say, yeah, we sponsored this team. Mm-hmm. We lost our shirts on it, but we sponsored this team. Uh, Rick and I both know a, a, a company from north of the U.S. That, that spent a lot of money doing that and didn't get quite the bang for their buck that they probably would have liked. And so, you know, the old way of doing it is to throw money at men, throw money at men, throw money at men. And then when it comes to women, it's the, eh, well, we don't know how to deal with women, you know, because they're, they're not guys. And it's just like, that's so stupid. So I'm, I'm proud of Trek for trying to find a way to monetize the program so that it gives it justification to exist outside of the boy bubble saying, hey, we should probably talk to women because that's just, you know, that, that hasn't worked. So it okay. really needs to be something else that will help it work. Okay, let's, let's, let's draw the line under that then. You were talking there, Tim, about... Uh, uh, commercializing a, a, a project uh, well let's commercialize this project and that's now cut to a commercial break hey everybody sorry to interrupt the show but this is david and i wanted to jump in and tell you about this week's show sponsor and of course it's none other than jensen usa at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman jensen usa is the place where you will find everything nearly everything at least for your cycling lifestyle Whether it's road biking, mountain biking, commuting, fitness, you name it, they've got what you're looking for. And all of those products are available at incredible prices. And most importantly, something that we've all come to crave here in 2016, 2017, unparalleled customer service. That's because if you call or email Jensen USA, you're not just going to get some customer support rep who really doesn't understand you and your cycling life. No, these are gear advisors and gear advisors are cyclists just like you and me. And they live the cycling lifestyle and they've tried so much of the products that are available on Jensen USA and they've got amazing training. They're there to help you. They can tell you what works and what doesn't which products go together and which don't, and you can tell them a little bit about what you're looking for, and they can definitely point you in the right direction. And on top of all of that, Jensen is offering new customers who are referred to them by the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast one item at 10% off. So, I mean, you know, don't go use that on a water bottle. Go buy a bike. Go buy a new suspension for Buy something expensive. Now, Some brands don't participate in promotions. And so if you see a message in your checkout that says no qualifying items in cart, go back and find something that qualifies. And then when you check out, simply enter the code, the spokesmen, no spaces, plural, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off one qualifying item. That's Jensen USA, J 
E-N-S-O-N, USA.com slash the spokesman. And even if you just call him, would you do us a favor and let him know that you heard about Jensen right here on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Our thanks, our great thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman and our thanks to you for supporting Jensen USA. And now back to the show. And we are back after that short commercial break. Uh, you are listening to The Spokesman and The Spokeswoman uh, on the show today. Uh, it's a packed show. If you've been listening from the start, you'll have heard lots of uh, juicy stuff. And we didn't fall out over any politics. Um, we also love each other, which is fantastic. And I'd now like to, to go into the advocacy section of the show. And I'm going to do a, a wee bit of a, a, a plug here for my own book, which is coming up uh, in May from Island Press of Washington, D.C. The book is called Bike Boom, and I um, dedicated it to a guy called Robert Silverman, Bicycle Bob, of uh, Montreal. And Montreal, if you know Montreal, has got 400 miles of uh, bikeways, including uh, quite a few of them actually protected. Some of them go through the, the, the centre of Montreal and were named after Claire Morissette, who was one of the advocates that was working with Bob. Sadly, Claire uh, died in 2007. Bob is still with us. And I say still with us because actually he might not have been with us. And after I sent him uh, a proof copy of uh, of the book in which I said I've, I've dedicated the book to him and to other 1970s bicycle advocates, he actually sent me this incredible, incredible email back uh, saying you literally saved my life in that you're allowed to 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 uh, commit suicide uh, with dignity in in Canada. You're allowed to end your own life in in Canada, unlike in other uh, countries. And he was thinking of doing this uh, because he's he's getting uh, older. He's uh, he's going blind. There's a number of complications. He had a stroke last year, and rather amazingly, he 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 just thought his life had had run its course. Uh, I sent in this dedication. He then perked up again wonderfully and is now incredibly uh, full of life again and is getting back into the into the scene in Montreal. He's, he's, he's reciting his story to local bike advocates. He's doing blogs and stuff. And he said that the, the cause of that was me doing this, this dedication. So I'd just like to throw it open to say, do we know of any other bicycle advocates who are really not getting the credit they deserve and these people are heroes because they are bringing people into our industry where they're bringing putting bums on saddles by getting people onto bikes so we, we people in this 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 call are, are generally making the bikes or writing about the bikes but we're not physically bringing the people in and bike advocates are very much bringing people in so are there anybody that you'd like to to throw in here of of, of bike advocates who are unsung heroes well, before, before we, we chime in there, I, I think it's a really important lesson that sometimes we all need reminders about that you never know what small thing, small thing to you um, may be really big to someone else or be really important yeah. to someone else. So, Carlton, you're writing this dedication. You just said this was the right thing to do and the right thing for your book and for how you feel and, and all of that and, and how you felt about about Bob and and all the other folks and and you know that was that was just something you did but you had probably had no idea the impact that it would have somewhere else so 
um, for for everyone on the on here and listening, you know, kindness matters. It really does, and especially in the world yeah. we're living in today. Um, do do the small things that you think are small because they may be really big for somebody else. Thank Amen. you. Thank you. Now, I, I just thought it was these these people need absolutely to be plugged and to be remembered. So Bob was working in the 70s and 80s, and there's, there's a whole ton of people who you know, kept cycling alive. And those were dark days, Rick. They were, those were dark. 1970s, there was a boom. But after the, the 74 boom fell away, then the industry went through pretty much a depression. And it was the people, you know, keep on plugging away who kept cycling alive. I think they're all underrated, to be yeah. totally. I, I was just going to say, know, I mean, where do you where do you stop and start? It's rare to meet an advocate who, you know, gets the and and a lot of like that's not why they do it, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's people in these communities everywhere. The, those are the people. Those are like the the beating hearts of the the community. Is these just uh, volunteers who are passionate about it and are you know, really making a difference. It's, it's all that this all adds up, you know? Yep, absolutely. And and you look at, at even the larger groups here in the U S like people for bikes with Tim Blumenthal, you know, Tim, Tim does fantastic work. His organization does amazing work and they get the lion's share of recognition because people see them and hear them. Even with them, they still don't get the kind of recognition that they deserve. I mean, then then you then you look at Imba and the people at Imba and, and and Blumenthal was at Imba in the past as well. I mean, Imba doesn't get enough recognition either, and and yet it's I would I would think that the vast majority of uh, recreational mountain bike riders will know who and what Imba is. They've seen it. They recognize the the those letters. But they still don't have a full grasp and understanding of the the, the depth of work that is done, mm. and I think that that's generally speaking, advocacy gets uh, short shrift because mm. people just go about their their daily activities either riding on the roads, commuting or competing, or uh, riding their mountain bikes on trails because they just always had access to those trails, and they just it's so easy to take all of that for granted and. So every, every book, every magazine, every website that has anything to do with cycling should have a dedication page to every single advocacy group that's anywhere near them because mm-hmm. it's it it doesn't it doesn't get enough recognition. The people involved don't get enough recognition. And again, even with like, going back to people for bikes, Tim Blumenthal is the the head of the organization and is seen as as such this this person and personality. And he's a great guy. I'm not trying to say anything about Tim, but then there are the myriad of folks below him at every level down who don't get the recognition because they're not a Tim Blumenthal who's doing all these press mm-hmm. conferences and going to these events, but they're, they are the, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, the amount, the army of volunteers is at, it, it's, they don't get enough recognition. None mm-hmm. of them. And in, until a trail is closed, until yeah. a, you know, a, a a road you ride as you until you lose access as a cyclist generally you don't you know it, it's got to hit home before you really care for the most part i remember going up to uh, tim's office which was subleased from another nonprofit organization in the outdoor industry and it was a very small it, it was a corner office because they couldn't it wasn't big enough to make it into a broom closet so tim was working in there 
by himself when Imba just got started and he just got hired. And, and he has gone a long way in promoting cycling on-road, off-road, all the time. And that's one of the things that I enjoy about Tim and the conversations that I've had with him over the years is that he is a passionate cycling advocate, cycling, mm-hmm. period. It doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, he, he's known for his start with Imba, but if it's got two wheels um, and you can pedal it somehow, he, he is in support of it mm-hmm. and he's got your back. He's been mm-hmm. working for you. So, you know, he's he's a good guy. He deserves the, the recognition that he gets, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. Cool. Thank you very much. Right. I'm going to wrap up the show. Now, we have actually lost Rick uh, on the show because he's just dropped out of Skype for whatever reason. So now is the, the time of the show where we give out our contact details and our websites, all that kind of stuff. So I'll start with Rick. Uh, and I'll just mention that his website, uh, it, well, it's Rick Vosper uh, Marketing Services, and that's rvms.com. So if Rick does somehow magically get back, he can tell us more <laughs> about uh, various places to contact him. But there's at least uh, there's, there's his st- uh, standard website. So let me go now then to Tim Jackson. Tim, how do we get in touch with uh, the, the 2W Power? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yes, there is powword.com. That's the uh, that's really just a landing page for the, the company at the at this point. It's it's brand new, so I'm I'm working on getting some content there, and we'll have links to clients. Uh, so that that will be growing and developing. But there's always two wheels and a half a brain, as well as just look for Tim Jackson on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm 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 in a lot of places too often. Including doing lots and lots of photographs on Instagram with you holding the camera in the air and getting the latest kit. I, li- I liked one of your your shots yesterday. Uh, yes, thank you, uh, Jim. How can we find you, Jim? Recreation Law. Uh, Twitter is Recreation Law, one word. Uh, recreation Law on the web, or Recreation Law at Gmail dot com, um, or just Google Recreation Law or Jim. Moss and I should pop up on the first page, if not pretty close to the top. Or some sort of uh, Boeing hangar somewhere yeah. else. Uh, Rick, well, is that, can, Rick, is that you back on? Most bars. Rick, are you back on? I'll give it a few seconds there. No. <laughs> I think Rick is trying to get back on it. I see on we, we do record this show on Skype, and I see a face come up, and that that was Rick's face, but he's disappeared again. And now it's gone again. <laughs> no, he's kind of keeps on appearing. But if he if he's back on, but no audio. If Rick can hear, then we have actually done his plug anyway. Uh, Donna, where can we where can I we get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Donna Tosi T O C C I, and you can also find me on Instagram. Same name. Cats? Do you have cats on your Instagram by any chance? I do. Mm-hmm. Also, a big fluffy husky that people really seem to like. <laughs> Bella's faces are so funny. Oh. See Bella, she has her mm. own little fan club. We go places and people, oh, you have Bella. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. And yeah. Nicole, Nicole. Apart from going on to Bike Mag and and seeing the articles uh, on there, how else can people get in touch with you? Um, oh, okay. Uh, I guess Instagram probably is the best way. Um, my Instagram handle is Nikki Fo at Nikki Fo N I C K I F O. No Twitter. 
Oh, no. No Twitter. Why not? Why not, Rico? Why are you not on Twitter? <laughs> you know, not a big Twitter fan. I just, it, I never, I, I, it never really took for me. I'm on Facebook, but Twitter mm. just seems, uh, I don't know. There's just too much to wade through on Twitter. I think it's the other way. Well, for me, concept. it's the other way around. I like Twitter and I'm not a huge fan of Facebook. <laughs> yeah. It's whatever. It, you, 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 you pay your money, you take your choice, hey? Okay, thank you. Um, so Rick is still struggling to get through and I'm, I'm not going to let him through because we've finished the show. <laughs> uh, I, am, <laughs> I am Carlton Reed, and you can find me on Twitter and you can't find me on Facebook very much. You won't find me on much at all. I am sort of Instagram, but only just sucking it and see. I'm no way as... Uh, I haven't got any pets, for a start, to, to put on there like Donna, so I can't do that. Uh, and my day job is kind of bikebiz.com and a few other things. Um, and this has been show... Let me go and have a look, actually. This has been show 159, is that right? No, sorry about that, 149. Next time it'll be our big 150. Uh, but this has been show 149 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. It was recorded on Sunday, February the 5th. And I've got to thank all of the guests who've been on the show today and have been very patient. And everybody who subscribes to this show has been phenomenally patient. And we promise, we promise, don't we, guys, not to be quite as late uh, uh, next time at getting a show out. Uh, but until then, and hopefully that is only uh, a wee while, which hopefully is in a, a couple of weeks' time, it's goodbye from all of us. <laughs>